Welcome back to another installment of the podcast for cultural reformation brought to you by the Ezra Institute. This is Worldview Wednesday. Our host for today's episode is Ryan Eras. one and all. This is the podcast for Cultural Reformation brought to you by the Ezra Institute. You can also find us on the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network. I'm Ryan Aris. It's good to be back with you and I'm joined as ever by Joe Boot and Nathan Oblak. Don't forget Cromwell. And Cromwell the dog is also here. <laughs> good to see you, Crom. A good boy. He's a good boy. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm uh, I'm very pleased and grateful uh, to have beaten uh, my client my case of climate change. Oh right, well done. Oh, yeah. Thank you. It was you look uh, well. You look good. Thank you. Thank you. All I had to do was uh, like buy some additional carbon credits. <laughs> Everybody should do this. Uh, you sold your soul. <laughs> yeah, but I feel great. <laughs> so, uh, for, uh, from what I understand. Uh, in our uh, our podcast last week, Joe, you took us through four uh, different ground motives that uh, Herman Doyward identified as uh, sort of motivating, activating, serving as the foundation for action and thought uh, throughout uh, throughout human history. Uh, somewhat overlapping, somewhat. Uh, intersecting but uh, nevertheless distinct hmm. uh, two or three of those sorry were uh, were erroneous uh, one was uh, what doya word and what you identified as a, a biblical motive uh, but one of those motives in particular we uh, we had wanted to get back to and that's the nature freedom motive mm-hmm. so I'll get you to uh, to recap that in just a minute but uh, part of the reason that we wanted to to get into this uh, more deeply, especially now, is that in the intervening week since last uh, last podcast, mm. there has been some uh, some legislation in Canada pushed through a uh, bipartisan, nonpartisan, however you want to say that all the parties were in support of it. Uh, this was this was Bill C four previously appeared as Bill C-6, which we've talked about uh, here in the past. Uh, this is the anti-conversion therapy bill. Mm-hmm. And We're dipping into politics now. Should we be doing that? Is that a theological thought or a political thought? <laughs> I'm, uh, what road are you taking us down here, Ryan? <laughs> I'm, I, I'm, in, I'm in the wrong book. I'm sorry. <laughs> must be a different podcast. I better find something. Uh, <laughs> That's for the uh, yeah. That's for my other other podcasts. Uh, this is uh, foreshadowing for where we're going with our conversation today. Good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to uh, I want us to be able to talk about Doyerwood's uh, identif- identification of this nature freedom motive, how that influences how that has influenced the state of affairs that we've that we find ourselves with today, and what. Uh, what we should think about as a legitimate Christian response to mm-hmm. the situation. And we're, I want to talk about uh, Bill C-4 more generally and some of the assumptions uh, contained in there, as well as, again, our, our broader uh, COVID response and how we, mm-hmm. how we should be thinking about that as Christians. Yeah, so how we might illuminate some of the um, COVID response uh, discussions uh, and concerns that we've been dealing with for for weeks, and also uh, this uh, this new bill, Bill C four, formerly Bill C six, is illuminated by uh, the nature freedom motive that uh, Doiver talked about. And so, as a very very quick recap. Mm-hmm. He was tracing the development of Western thought from the time of the ancient Greeks. Uh, through to the uh, the present, through to the, the the late modern world, and he talked about these four motives, uh, four uh, deep sort of religious motivating forces that have shaped eras and shaped the development of thought. The first was the form matter, in which he identified the two uh, polarities of Greek thought, 
the the, uh, the matter being the sort of stream of life, um, the cyclical view, uh, uh, the coming into being and and, and going out of being uh, again, um, and the problem of fate, and that that was the ancient Greek sort of folk religion, if you will, and then the emergence of the cultural religion of Greece centered in the Mount Olympus and the, the gods and forms, ideas, rational ideas, and so on. That that form matter motive um, to uh, co-eternal principles of form and matter in an uncreated uh, world. Uh, then you had the attempted synthesis of those in what Dover calls the nature-grace um, uh, dialectic, if you will. These are dialectical in, in the sense that they are opposite poles. Um, they're irreconcilable. Uh, and the nature grace was the attempt to take over the Greek idea of nature and synthesize it with Christianity and, and put Christianity on top, like the sort of ice cream, uh, mm. like the icing, I should say, mm. on top of the cake. Mm. Uh, and the development of a two-story world of nature and grace, law, gospel, mm. um, heaven and earth, uh, um, you know, eternal soul or, or the idea of an immortal rational soul, and the material body, and the, the the various dualisms that have actually come to be very almost endemic, very much endemic in the, the Western Christian tradition um, that separates out life and uh, reality itself into these two domains or two stories of existence, one belonging to nature, a realm of, of common grace, if you will, uh, and then this upper story of um, grace where the pixie dust of the church must be sprinkled upon uh, the rest of, um, uh, of of the aspects of creation to kind of influence them to some degree with Christianity and the church supervenes as the institution which brings us to eternal bliss um, and the, the state is the, on the Greek view, imported into that synthesis view is um, the institution that is the source of sort of unity, uh, a hierarchical structure that brings us to sort of moral rectitude, close to moral perfection, um, but can't give us grace, which is perched on top. So hmm. there... Th th Joe, this would obviously uh, promote the privatization of faith as well, would it not? Yes, yeah. because it pushes up. Christianity gets pushed further and further away into an upper story of grace where your faith must be increasingly privatized because culture, politics, law, education, all of these areas are the, in the nature pole right. um, and have to be dealt with in terms of man's reason and natural law. So that was the synthesis view, and we're going to pick up on that um, and deal with it in, a, in another session where we deal almost just entirely with a deeper discussion of that. Then Doiverd talks about the biblical uh, world and life view, which is the only non-dialectical one, the only one that doesn't have opposing poles in it, and that is the only one that doesn't split the person in half. Split the person mm. and split reality mm. uh, in uh, up into uh, into into irreconcilable parts, or parts that are at least in an uncomfortable, unhappy, temporary union. Right, uh, and that is creation, fall, redemption through the Lord Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. We might say the kingdom of God. Um, that there's the kingdom of darkness and there's the kingdom of light. There is one creation. Uh, creation and redemption are an historical continuum. They're not radically separated from one another. And uh, Christ claims all things for himself, all of creation, and he is redeeming a people for himself and establishing his kingdom uh, in the earth and reconciling all things to God till, as Paul says in Romans 8, finally creation itself is released from its bondage to corruption and God's dwelling is with men and we have the consummation of the, the kingdom of God. So there are no um, artificial dualities, no uh, philosophically constructed dualisms, no multiplicity of kingdoms. Uh, there's only apostasy, kingdom of darkness, obedience, faithfulness, the kingdom of light. Right. And those two principles work themselves out in every single domain of life. And this is what the Reformation begins to recognize and see and recover, uh, and uh, we've talked about the Reformational tradition really emphasizing that. Then finally, Doiverd's the one we're talking about today, a bit more, 
is the nature nature freedom polarity, where um, again nature um, following Aristotle, uh, in fact, right through until the turn of the twentieth century and early part of the twentieth century, Aristotle's view of a steady state, uh, sort of eternal um, universe, was dominant. Before we had the sort of the Big Bang theory enter the fray, which is now under threat again. Um, but we we have this uh, nature freedom dialectic, and what that basically means is nature is the realm of determination, of law, uh, of um, uh, structure, um, and it's deterministic. It's not an area. It's not a realm of freedom. Um, and it's kind of a given. It's a given, and it it runs in terms of um, natural laws. And this was the sort of edifice of the 19th century mathematics and sciences uh, as it emerged from the Enlightenment. And the hope was that the knowledge that was brought to man of existing affairs within the sciences would um, allow him to, to um, conquer uh, disease and war and pain and suffering and everything else and um, deliver man into a sort of a new... Uh, glorious age, that it would be the, uh, in a certain sense, the hard sciences that would do that. But with the um, First and Second World War uh, and the pessimism that comes in very much after that and the nihilistic and existential um, frameworks of thinking, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll comment on a moment in why that particular view of the science, the sciences has died out. But on the, but on the nonetheless, on the one hand, you've got the idea that uh, you have um, the these tools uh, that man has in the sciences that um, deal with a nature that is deterministic. It's 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 governed by um, laws that are uh, invariant. Then on the other hand, you've got the the freedom pole in in this dialectic, where at the same time you've got the the freedom of man, mm. the freedom of human beings, the freedom of the human personality. But how do you maintain, mm -hmm. if man is only a product of natural laws and is um, uh, in no way transcends the created order, uh, that he is a, um, uh, he's an, an advanced animal, um, he's uh, uh, the product of eons of evolution, how do you maintain the idea of the freedom of the human personality? Because originally you might say that the only limit on the, the edifice of 19th century science was actually the, the thing was, well, but human beings are free and they make free decisions, don't they? They make free choices. They determine their own course. Um, and so this, 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 this freedom element introduces this dialectical problem. How can you maintain the freedom of the human personality in a deterministic world? Uh, and so we've lurched between an emphasis on the freedom of the human personality to determinism within the uh, within the sciences, and um, that's basically what Doyerverd meant by this this dialectic. And of course, he works it out how it functions in tremendous and quite profound detail. Mm -hmm. um, Actually, uh, Joe stumbled on a quote from Doyerverd this morning uh, that fits what you're describing so well. But he he said, "All this begs the question: Where is the central seat of man's autonomous liberty to be found?" Right, um, right. Because of course, you're no longer there, there's no transcendency. Man is solely uh, the master of his destiny. Yeah, man. Man, in this view, is 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 uh, is caught in in the science in the in the in the nature pole. He's caught in a certain sense within the wheels of fate. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, he wants to assert his own freedom. So, how do those those ideas get uh, brought together? How are they synthesized in some way? And this is what um, uh, Van Riesen picks up on in his amazing book, The Society of the Future. He's a reformational philosopher. Mm. His book was written in the 50s. Um, and he, he says, uh, the kind of, and I'm quoting now, the kind of humanism that considers man as possessing an independent supremacy over reality will liquidate man's position at the very moment it tries to realize this absolute sovereignty by means of a totalitarian science. 
The liquidation of liberty in science is, however, more than a theoretical error. It is an error which involves great danger. Now, what he's what he's saying here, what he's picking up on, is that the 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 attempt to synthesize these two poles comes about in the effort to say man, in order to still be free in the context of a determined nature, must um, move on from the uh, the notion of existing reality and describing it to prescribing to uh, planning through the tools of the sciences, his own future. Um, the overestimation of the, the task of science in practical life, Van Riesen says, in my opinion, is the most disquieting symptom of the society of the future. And he says, and I quote, the basic motive of humanism, a humanity that redeems itself and progresses to the sovereign domination of reality is itself projected into modern science. To many humanists, modern science is preeminently the means of self-redemption. He goes on, freedom is a fundamental limitation to science, but this statement refers to our knowledge of existing reality. Our thesis is essentially changed when science is applied to the formation of a future reality. Science then lays down the law to reality. And uh, so what he's saying is, it's not now about, yes, the limit was placed on science by freedom when we were just concerned with existing reality. Now the idea of synthesizing these two poles is that we will use, the way we'll exercise our freedom is taking the tools of science and through it, forming our own future reality. Uh, the true science effectively becomes the science of man, right? Sociology. Uh, we are now going to be a technocratic society that will, in pragmatic terms, uh, take the tools of science and try and wrest uh, from nature uh, the fate to which it seems to have assigned us. And we will now plan our own future and save ourselves. We'll redeem ourselves. We'll get back to the garden. We'll restore paradise. We will now um, manipulate reality through the, the free personality of man, manipulate reality so that we can plan our own salvation and our own self-redemption. And Van Riesen, I think, in this very telling quote says this, those who only look to science for a solution of the problems with which the world wrestles give man a false sense of security. Mm. And on the other hand, they forge the bonds with which he will soon be chained they forge the bonds with which they will soon be changed. When you take this view of science as sovereign with, with the man's personality uh, as the sovereign source of control, using the tools of science to form reality and to lay down the law to reality, you are now forging the very bonds with which you will be chained. Mm. And uh, that is the, the way in which we see this uh, nature freedom polarity playing itself out uh right now uh van Riesen says correctly um in the late modern world uh the old mm. hope in the sort of um grand edifice of a an, of a, an unquestionable mathematics and, and and this sort of description of reality that that, uh, that would sort of usher in perfect peace that's been abandoned because we, in the 20th century, because we've seen this it was never going to be realized. What we've turned to is the thought, well, we've not abandoned science. So, so what we were going to do now is we're going to use the tools, the pragmatic tools, instrumentally to now form our own future. We will now control reality totally and have the planned technocratic society. That's what um, Van Riesen was talking about in this amazing book, The Society of the Future. And um, it's what Doiverd recognized um, was very much on the horizon hmm. um, in the, the attempt to reconcile these irreconcilable poles of nature and freedom in the late modern, in the, in the modern dialectic hmm. uh, of, of humanism. Well, and this is just a, it's a conception of liberty that's completely removed from God's law, God's word. It also 
it also requires, you know, where, where you could think of science as something that you're doing to, you know, exercise dominion, if I can use that theological yeah, language, mm-hmm. on the natural world that has been given to us. This is a vision where you're exercising, you know, unlawful dominion or domination right. or right. control over another image bearer of God. Or, well, that's a critical point because you we can see why human beings gravitate to this position because it's a perversion of the cultural mandate given mm-hmm. to human beings to be yep. vicegerents under God. It wasn't mm-hmm. ever in terms of the notion of the absolute freedom of the human personality. That's right. In a world, in a, in a universe, basically uh, governed, if that's not a contradiction, by fate or chance, mm-hmm. um, uh, by, the, uh, by the, the, the rising, the coming into being and the, and the disappearance of, of things, um, man sort of seizing and planning his own redemption from the forces threatening to crush him. You can see how that is literally a secularization of the biblical mandate, which is we are creatures made in God's image. We can't be accounted for solely in terms of our functions within creation. There's this transcendent element that you touched on, Nathan, already in in the heart of man. We're not uh, caught in the wheels of some sort of fatalistic view of the world. God's uh, law and um, uh, norms for reality structure our lives. That's actually the foundation of our freedom and our liberty, uh, because without law there is no liberty, uh, that the condition of life and freedom is law, so that there is structure. And then within that, human beings are tasked with bringing um, uh, under control uh, to bring into into, uh, proper order, to, to govern and develop and bring out the potential of creation, so that a God-glorifying um, uh, kingdom uh, is what happens with the, the, the raw materials uh, of God's creation, that uh, we are, we're obedient to that, uh, that, that commission by faithfulness to God and to his word. And so that's why there is no such thing as a neutral area of life or a, a neutral approach to politics or a neutral approach to education or a neutral approach to the sciences or anything like that, because... Um, we either believe in God's creation and his laws and norms for creation and his, that he's spoken to us by revelation uh, and that we have a task in creation in terms of the kingdom of God, um, or we don't. Well, we, do, we don't believe that God has a law for all these areas of life and we're driven by an apostate motive for, for man to be his own God. And so this is stuff that we talk about endlessly on our program, but it, it always bears repeating mm-hmm. Because it seems so so slow to to actually sink in um, to people's minds and lives that this that it, from the biblical uh, perspective all of this world belongs to the Lord, all of creation is His, and we're called to a task in it. And Christ redeems us uh, and restores us. And we come through the new birth, regeneration, and we're restored to to uh, to being the faithful image bearers. Um, of the last Adam who is establishing his kingdom. So this is the sort of 101 of Christian world and life view, but that's how the, the nature, freedom, polarity, um, or dialectic uh, sort of fits in. And it's what we're up against now as we look at the culture. Mm-hmm. And Joe, you mentioned that under this religious motive, you know, the hope would be that we now have the freedom to, to plan, to socially engineer our society, our culture. Um, and obviously, it should be obvious that this has now gotten us to a bill like Bill C-4. Mm-hmm. Um, I wonder if you can walk us through how this uh, this current ground motive has led to uh, the, the passing of this bill rushed through the House yeah. last week, now before the Senate. How did we get here? Well, I mean, if you... Uh Actually, I wonder if, as I answer that, if I could have uh, Brian just read the preamble mm-hmm. um, to the bill so that people uh, get a sense of that, and then we can describe how these motives um, account for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so this is the preamble, and for anyone who's maybe not familiar, the preamble just sort of lays out the uh, the basic assumptions uh, that are informing the bill, as well as the, the fundamental rationale for why are we introducing this mm-hmm. bill. Mm-hmm. So the preamble states, whereas conversion therapy causes harm to the the persons who are subjected to it, 
and whereas conversion therapy causes harm to society because, among other things, it is based on and propagates myths and stereotypes about sexual orientation, gender identity, and gender expression, including the myth that heterosexuality, cisgender gender identity, and gender expression that conforms to the sex assigned to a person at birth are to be preferred over other sexual orientations, gender identities, and gender expressions. And, whereas in light of those harms, it is important to discourage and denounce the provision of conversion therapy in order to protect the human dignity and equality of all Canadians. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing to me they can claim to be irreligious. Yeah. Well, look at the the definition there. Effectively, their, their idea, so this is critical, their idea of human dignity... Mm. is radical autonomy. That's right. Right, right. So human dignity for them consists in the radical autonomy of the free personality. And and uh, this is what the reformational uh, insight is highlighting. Mm. And notice critically also in that preamble that the attack is on the so-called myth of creation order, right. of mm-hmm. male and female, of um, God-ordained sexual identity, mm-hmm. The notion, we're at a point now where the notion that there that God made them male and female, that's a, that's a myth and it's harmful to society. That that, we need to free ourselves. And we need to liberate yeah. ourselves from the chains of being male and female. Mm-hmm. Now, so you can see there how the creation, fall, redemption paradigm is rejected. There is no creation law. Mm-hmm. Man is not fallen. You don't account for man's sexual perversion and sin in terms of, the, the the fall uh, and alienation from God and man's apostasy and rebellion, mm-hmm. it's actually, those are myths. Mm-hmm. So creation and the fall are a myth, according to this Canadian piece of legislation. They're not named. They're not named, <laughs> but that's what, that's, that's implicit there. They're oh, myths. It's very clear. What else could it be? And human dignity is uh, man's radical autonomy mm-hmm. and his freedom and, and health is in a new order in which we legislate uh, normative human identity and sexuality out of existence. And of course, this is only one bill. I mean, we've seen in Ontario, you've got the, uh, the, the what they call the, um, at the provincial level, we've got the Families, uh, uh, the Ontario Families Act. All families all, are equal. All families oh, are right. equal, that's correct. Um, where you've got the family being entirely redefined, up to four people can enter a contract, mm-hmm. totally unrelated people can enter a contract with each other before mm-hmm. a child is even born to be the parents, inverted commas, mm-hmm. of that child. So this is just part of the ongoing destruction of creational normativity in terms of the freedom of the human personality. And uh, it's for the purpose of a technocratic society. It's there to sociology, uh, man is the new the subject of science and it's the pl- planning, the formation of a new future where we will lay down the law to reality and make a new reality and form a new future that conforms with the rebellious idea of man. And he'll use the sciences to do it, not just the science of jurisprudence, but he'll use um, our knowledge of chemicals and hormones. So we're going to uh, inject or ingest uh, into children, not just adults, minors, Mm -hmm. hormones to try and alter their their, uh, physical responses. Uh, And we're going to take the knife to them and mutilate their bodies with the knife through surgery in order to realize our planned order. We're going to use the technique, the technique, right? Technicism, the technique of the sciences uh, to recreate and reimagine all of reality the scalpel and our knowledge of human anatomy and our knowledge of chemicals and hormones and we're going to take that technical knowledge and we're going to use it to try and imagine and remake uh the human person and not just the human individual human society the entirety of social order there is no social revolution without sexual revolution so it's an attempt to remake society and social order in toto. This is the essence of technocracy. Um, and we are living through it. We are seeing it legislated. This was pushed through, you'll recall, last week mm-hmm. by the conservatives. That's mm-hmm. right. Yeah. Uh, so-called. Yeah, they moved to push it through. They moved to fast-track it mm-hmm. through the House. Not a single person stood and mm-hmm. protested or voted against this. Mm-hmm. 
and it went and um, it's in with the Senate now, and every expectation is that they will fast track this thing mm-hmm. through as well. So in that area, we're living through it. Of course, there's the other area we're living through. This is with COVID. Mm-hmm. And just Joe, lest anyone think that uh, you've you've used some some strong language there about you mutilating children, lest anyone think that you're scaremongering. Let's just I just want to read a, a quick paragraph here, please, from the bill. Uh, so it talks about what uh, what's covered under the definition of conversion therapy, and then at the end here. For greater certainty, it says, I quote, this definition does not include a practice, treatment, or service that relates to the exploration or development of an integrated personal identity, such as practice, treatment, or service that relates to a person's gender transition, and that is not based on an assumption that a particular sexual orientation, gender identity, or other gender expression is to be preferred over another. Yes. Mm. So this this cuts entirely one way correct it's an anti-conversion law yeah it's not an anti-conversion therapy law right. it's an anti-conversion law um you can have any kind of therapy treatment service that converts you in this anti-normative direction mm-hmm. what you can't do even as a consenting adult under this law is ask for help counsel therapy um that would help you to conform to God's normative structure for human identity and human sexuality. So that's, that, it, that's the essence of the use of technique, which of course is meant to be employed in the service of God mm-hmm. to an apostate motive mm-hmm. to remake creation in rebellion against God right. and create a technocratic society. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it's deeply disturbing. And we see, of course, with the, we touched on this already, but with the various COVID measures, the, mandatory what we're seeing increasingly across europe a mandatory medical treatments for all members of the population mm-hmm. um including boosters uh various mandates uh, lockdowns these are uh, these are attempts not only to 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 monkey with the economy um and um transform man's environment um it's an effort to con- completely control our lives um the control of children is in view here as well when you have uh, um, these things being rolled out in such a fashion that uh, in various places and in various nations, parents don't have to be consulted about what's being injected into their children. Mm -hmm. And so this attempt to reach into and reorganize, this is what the whole Build Back Better mantra that Mm -hmm. you hear everywhere now with with the politicians... Um, and of course, COP26, which we've talked about in the last few weeks, is another great example. The whole climate change, um, uh, so-called science um, and agenda, is about this technique, sociological technique, to use sciences, sciences of sociology, some of the hard sciences and so forth, to remake the social order in terms of rebellion against God and a rebellion against the mandate we're given by God to rule and subdue and to be fruitful and multiply. No, if you're, uh, if you're having lots of children, you're, you're just birthing mm-hmm. carbon emitters and you're, mm-hmm. you're actually destroying the planet. Mm-hmm. So all the things that God says are good and you're to do, the technocratic society in the grip of the freedom of the human personality that's in apostasy against God will move against every creational norm and structure. And it will do it in terms of these sciences. Sociology, jurisprudence, uh, chemistry, uh, medicine, all of these different areas will be put into the service of this technocratic uh, idea. Hmm. And it's just so interesting, these two examples we've kind of picked out to discuss today with this uh, religious motive, but the COVID response and Bill C-4, but with the COVID response, we see that obvious desire to control nature. And then we're also seeing the radical autonomy and the liberty from God's laws and norms through the Bill C-4 response. That's right. That's interesting. Yeah. yeah. So we're seeing that dialectic in work. Yeah. The that notion that we right can, yeah. we believe that we can, we're at the point where we think that we can change the weather, mm-hmm. uh, stop right. virus, <laughs> stop respiratory viruses. Yeah. Uh, with, with, you know, which is proving uh, 
totally mythological. Yeah, how's that working? Out? Um, exactly, <laughs> and um, and we can alter the sexual identity. So we can alter sexual identity, change the weather, and eradicate viruses mm-hmm. um, in the name of the um, of of um, the free personality of man, employing uh, the tool technique of. The sciences. Those are the, those are the claims that um, this nature freedom poll today is actually making for itself. Right. It's being played out right in front of our eyes. Yeah. Right. And of course, uh, most of these folks are are claiming that they're being irreligious, that they're being apolitical, which is just amazing to us. But we're recognizing that I think a lot of people are thinking this way because of what they're hearing from the church, from church right. leaders. Yeah. And. Yeah. Uh, you know, we were we were listening to a conversation earlier this week from a group of pastors that are part of the Gospel Coalition Canada, and I think it might be helpful to actually play some clips so we can hear, you know, what is being said from the pulpits across this country that would lead to the people in this country thinking the way they do. But we'll we'll play some of those. Yeah. Clips so right the notion now. that you can yeah. have a um, you make a good point there, sort of that these are apolitical things. Right. So this is not essentially mm-hmm. religious. Mm-hmm that religion and politics don't really mix. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, we're, we're seeing that if you don't have th- this world re- worldview reflection mm-hmm. where you can identify the religious driving forces within a culture mm-hmm. and you don't have a scriptural view of reality mm-hmm. where you recognize creation, fall, redemption, that let's remember all of creation is the Lord's, mm-hmm. every cultural um, uh, structure is to be subservient to the Lord Jesus Christ, every sphere of life, if you don't have that, this is where you end up. Um, Obviously, politics has come into the church landscape in a new way. I I was born in this city 55 years ago. A minister of the gospel wouldn't have dreamt of putting a political lawn sign on his front yard, let alone making political statements in churches. Uh, I admit to also being deeply influenced by Martin Lloyd-Jones. I see him quoted sort of by both sides. It's kind of interesting. Uh, But I think if you've read widely in Lloyd-Jones, you understand that he was living through a time of great political upheaval and was um, quite concerned about Christians who would lean into the politics as a solution to um, what was going on in the day. So oh, just to, just to, to jump in on that Lloyd Jones thing, we'll, we'll send it right back to you. But I was reading Lloyd Jones's commentary on uh, "Blessed Are the Peacemakers," uh, or sorry, "Blessed Are Those Who Persecute." Was the chapter I found this in because uh, I'm working my way through the Beatitudes, and uh, he, I mean, he has a, a great quote there on "Make sure you're not persecuted because of your politics." But then, actually, the quote that I, I didn't. In, including my sermon, because I thought, oh, man, this just blow the doors off and uh, I'll get more email on this than I can handle. But he has like a full paragraph where he goes off and, and, and says, you know, some of you oppose communism and have all these strong thoughts about communism. And he says, are you sure those, those are theological thoughts or are, are those political thoughts? And he says, because there's nothing inherently theologically wrong with communism. The, the problem is the sinful people uh, managing the system. And I thought, oh, boy. Can, but, but so he was saying, keep your, keep your politics out of the church and keep it out of the pulpit. And it was, it was one of the strongest statements I've seen on that in any writing anywhere. Wow. That's kind of uh, (laughs) sort of train wreck meets dumpster fire meets capsized cruise ship. Does it? (laughs) 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 A very evocative picture. (laughs) Well, well, uh, tell well, us what you really think there, Joe. <laughs> First of all, let's uh, let, let's break that down a little bit. Yeah, so, sure. so the essence of what they're driving at here seems to be that uh, you you don't bring you don't lean into politics as a Christian. You don't bring uh, politics into the life of the church. I mean, even the lawn sign was unthinkable. Of a political lawn sign would have been unthinkable. You know, when this particular pastor was uh, growing up in the city or whatever. And of course, he's saying there that that would be wrong sure the implication yeah. being that you know, this is you know, this is devices this, this is bringing politics into things mm. and that um somehow that that uh you know politics is a sphere that we need to leave alone that's that is not subject to the the lordship of jesus christ or the revelation specific revelation of god's word and therefore, it doesn't belong really in the life of the church. And then there's an appeal to authority um, 
to Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a 20th century British evangelical. In fact, I knew uh, one of his daughters, actually, for a time in London. Mm. Um, I have read widely in Lloyd-Jones. In fact, I've read most of what Lloyd-Jones has written, um, including his book, The Puritans, Their Origins and Successors. And uh, he was a medical doctor by training That's right. um, and uh, did uh, the church a, a, a great service in reintroducing a lot of pastors to the Puritans, um, not sufficiently to the to the works of the Puritans that uh, like um, Samuel Rutherford's Lex Rex and some of the, the, the where, where the Puritans actually dealt with the details of church, state and politics. Banner of Truth tended to focus on Puritan spirituality and piety and doctrine and so on. Uh, but he did do the church a real service there. Um, and um, it's it's worth pausing on Lloyd-Jones just for a minute because he is appealed to frequently as, as, as some kind of authority. I actually think that in general, um, Lloyd-Jones is not the best guide to Christianity and culture. Um, he was well-read. He was thoughtful. Um uh, but not always the best guide. There are better guides to wrestling with the issue of Christianity and culture than, than Lloyd-Jones. Um, but he was a faithful preacher, he was a faithful pastor, a tremendous evangelist, and had a, a meaningful impact in my own life uh, in the early part of my ministry especially. But because he's being cited there, I wanted to actually turn to one of his um, lectures in um, uh, The Puritans, Their Origins and Successes, um, in which he deals with the Christian and the state in revolutionary times. And uh, just because I want to respond to what these pastors are actually trying to to claim here. Mm -hmm. um, Lloyd-Jones actually says, and I'm quoting now, John Wesley, so he's talking about the evangelicals, denounced the revolution, this is the French, Rev French Revolution, from the very beginning and prophesied that this was going to be the introduction of the time of the end. William Wilberforce, the leader in the cause for the abolition of slavery, regarded it with absolute horror. And he goes on to talk about the reaction amongst evangelicals to the French Revolution. And very interestingly, in this particular lecture, he talks about Groen van Prinsterer. Hmm. Groen van Prinsterer, huh. who was the forerunner of Abraham Kuyper. Mm -hmm. And uh, contra these gentlemen that we've just heard from, uh, Lloyd-Jones speaks in the most positive terms about Groen van Prinsterer, um, who was a secretary to the king in the Netherlands, eventually secretary to the cabinet. And he wrote a, a book published in 1847 called uh, Unbelief and Revolution, which um, Lloyd-Jones was deeply impressed with. And at the, at the time when Lloyd-Jones was writing, only one chapter of that book had been translated into English. I've read it. Hmm. I've read the whole book. Uh, Lloyd-Jones wouldn't have had uh, the opportunity to do that. that. Um, and he actually expresses the hope that the whole book would be translated quickly so that Christians in England had access to it. Um, and he cites with approval Van Prinsterer, who says this, the revolution, uh, and, and Van Prinsterer is now quoting Stahl, and I quote, the revolution is a unique event. It is a revolution of beliefs. It is the emergence of a new sect, of a new religion, of a religion that is nothing but irreligion except <laughs> itself, atheism, the hatred of Christianity raised into a system. Um, and uh, he goes on to discuss in the development of the thought in both Europe and then in England, um, the remarkable rise of Abraham Kuyper and the anti-revolutionary party, uh, the battles that Kuyper fought in the political arena. Um, and he, uh, he, he identifies that, 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 that uh, the struggles of the 20th century, communism, Nazism, um, Karl Marx, all of that, Lloyd-Jones writes, all these are essentially religious, as Van Prinsterer saw, that the French Revolution was in reality a new religion and not merely a political theory. There is an element of worship in them and also an apocalyptic element. They are not merely political programs. There is something much deeper and almost demonic. This is true of fascism as well as of communism, end quote. Uh, and so Lloyd-Jones was emphatic in his 
um, description here of the religious character of these political movements. He's agreeing with Van Prinsterer, uh, and he um, goes on to speak of the 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 importance of the Christian not only being concerned with their personal salvation. Now, let me quote this. So this is, I'm quoting still from the Puritans, their origins and successors, and it, it's the particular lecture, the Christian and the state in revolutionary times. And I quote, the Christian is not only to be concerned about personal salvation, it is his duty to have a complete view of life as taught in the scriptures. That is common to all the views that have been considered, apart from those which are non-religious to which I have been referring. As far as the Christian is concerned, and that is about what and that is what we are interested in now, we are not to be concerned only about personal salvation. We must have a worldview. Hmm. All of us who have ever read Kuiper and others have been teaching this for many long years, wow. end quote. Uh, and this was one of the things that impacted me personally about the work of mm. Lloyd-Jones is why I was interested in it. And even though, as I say, I don't think he's the most accurate and able guide for Christianity and culture, he had some val valuable things to say. And in the claim, with regard to the claim that... Um, well, the only people who have problems with this issue are the Anglicans and the Catholics trying to join church and state. This is what he says. And I quote, the Plymouth Brethren are also are by no means innocent in this respect by regarding any participation in politics in any form as being the height of sin. They inevitably landed themselves on the side of the status quo. You say that again. This is Lloyd-Jones. By regarding any participation in politics in any form as being the height of sin, they inevitably landed themselves on the side of the status quo. The first member of parliament from among the brethren told, told me and many others that he was more or less ostracized in his brethren meeting because he had committed the terrible sin of taking part in politics. This shows how defective and contradictory our mm. thinking can be. While they denounced a man for going into politics, they never denounced men for going into the army. And uh, he ide basically what Lloyd-Jones does is to bring this comment to a summation. He... Um, he basically identifies uh, three potential dangers in this whole area of Christianity and politics. Um, one is um, just, um, you know, becoming the Tory party at prayer, like not recognizing, which is what sometimes Anglicanism was accused of being, mm -hmm. um, not being sufficiently alert to the need for change. And Lloyd-Jones says the le legitimate reform and the legitimate rights of people. Uh, he says the second danger um, is is becoming um, so taken up in political life that you lose sight of the kingdom of God um, and the the uh, the priority of regeneration. He actually, by the way, describes Oliver Cromwell, and I'm quoting now, hmm. uh, as perhaps the most honest man in the 17th century, a man who strove to be true to his conscience above all others that I know of in political history. Oliver Cromwell. That's Lloyd-Jones I'm quoting, mm -hmm. right? Um and so he says that it's inevitable that people who are concerned with God, his word, and uh, uh, are going to be concerned with reform. Um, and so he says then a third danger is to be an advocate. He says, and I quote now, the third danger is to advocate complete otherworldliness. I've already dealt with that by emphasizing that it is the, is the duty of the Christian always to be concerned about these matters and to have a worldview. Okay, so that's what we're emphasizing, that we should be concerned about these matters. We have to have a worldview. Mm. And, and moreover, Lloyd-Jones goes on to say, and I quote, that a lack of political and social concern on the part of Christians can very definitely alienate people from the gospel and the church. Uh, and he sang the praises of Abraham Kuyper. I want you to uh, listen to this. Um, he says, "Government and and law and order are essential because man in his because of man in his sin, and the Christian should be the best citizen in the country. But as all our sinful reform is legitimate and desirable, the Christian must act as a citizen and play his part in politics." and other matters in order to get the, to the best possible conclusions. We must always remember that politics is the art of the possible, and so the Christian must remember as he begins that he can only get the possible. 
Because he is a Christian, he must work for the best and be content with that which is less than fully Christian. That is what Abraham Kuyper seems to me to have done. Uh, and uh, he then goes on to urge Christians to engage. This is important, I think, especially in the light of the COVID issues today. And I quote again, in so many countries today, the Christian can do nothing but indulge in passive resistance. And he must continue in that until a point arrives that his government tries to interfere with his relationship to God or his worship of God. His resistance must then become an active resistance. This is Lloyd-Jones, <laughs> an active resistance. But should, but should he live in a country where a large number of people are agreed about reform and improvement, and, that's, and that seems possible, I would say it is his duty to join them and to belong to them. So um, I'm sorry, but um, and that's my the end of my my Lloyd Jones quotes, and I'm sure we're going to go on a little bit further here. But this it's a is tale, a tale of two very different Martin Lloyd this, Jones. Yeah, no, this is kidding. a tale of two people. <laughs> is, yeah, that's right. And uh, and I think if people do actually, uh, and as I've said, his writings. I'm not even yeah. suggesting in those citations that Lloyd Jones in general right. is the best guide. Right. But I am saying that his in his own words refute everything you just heard there. Mm. Right. Well, and Joe, you mentioned John Wesley, Oliver Cromwell, Abraham Kuyper, but we think of John Knox, we think of William, William Wilberforce. Wilberforce. Right, <laughs> right. So <laughs> I, it's just amazing to me that we've had such a radical departure from the, the perspective. I'm so glad you mentioned yeah. <laughs> John Wesley oh. and, uh, and, and, and uh, William Wilberforce, because the people that you're talking about, Nathan, are the founders of modern right. evangelicalism. That's right. Right. They are the very founders of the movement to which these men claim to belong. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now I'm going to read but to they, you they briefly. Wouldn't, they wouldn't dare put uh, a lawn sign out for a. a well, don't put party. a lawn. I mean, what, if you can't put a lawn sign out, how do you abolish slavery? Mm -hmm. uh, right. That's a good question, isn't it? Yeah. Um, Wil Wilberforce and the anti-slavery, the abolitionist movement. They had all kinds of pins and signs mm -hmm, and right. leaflets. Mm -hmm. It wasn't just. Uh, wasn't just things that they were willing to hang out. They were producing these. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So uh, Wesley spent a lot of his time writing letters to politicians and to and to lords and to people that he knew. Um, this was a this was a constant activity of John Wesley. Um, one particular letter to Lord Shelburne, um, uh, who was a Home Secretary under Chatham. Um, and this uh, this was in a time he wrote this in a time when Britain was was facing the potential of continental attacks um, and needed um, an efficient uh, military and soldiers. Wesley writes to the Home Secretary uh, with respect to the uh, requirement that soldiers are training on the Lord's Day, hmm. um, and um, he 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 in this very interesting letter and it was it's a letter from for those of you who want to check 7th of december 1782 to lord shelburne uh, he talks about a motion which has been uh, which has been passed and um uh, for the training of soldiers and he says about 30 years ago i'm quoting from his letter now about 30 years ago a motion was made in parliament for raising and embodying the militia and for exercising them to have time on Sunday. When the motion was like to pass, an old gentleman stood up and said, Mr. Speaker, I have one objection to this. I believe an old book called the Bible. <laughs> uh, the members looked at one another and the motion was dropped. Right, this is in Wesley's <laughs> letter, right? Uh, the motion was dropped. Most not, uh, must not all others, he goes on, who believe the Bible have the same objection. And from what I have seen, I cannot but think that there are still three-fourths of the nation now setting religious, uh, uh, that, sorry, that these, there, that these are still three-fourths of the nation. Um, he goes on, for would, not, for, for would not they, would not all England, would not all Europe consider this a virtual repeal of the Bible? So is, is this legislation not essentially, he says, a repeal of the Bible? And he closes mm. his letter saying, Will your lordship permit me to add a word in my old-fashioned way? I pray him that has all power in heaven and earth to prosper all your endeavors for the public good. And am my lord, your lordship's willing servant, John Wesley. 
Uh, that's just a taste of the many letters he wrote on issues of legislation in, in Parliament. And perhaps one of the most notable letters actually in world history, and certainly in evangelical history, was a letter to William Wilberforce, the very last letter that John Wesley wrote. Mm-hmm. I want to read it to you very because it's a short letter. My dear sir, unless the divine power has raised you up to be as Athanasius contramundum against the world, that means... Yep. I see not how you can go through your glorious enterprise in opposing that uh, execrable villainy, which is the scandal of religion of England and of human nature. He's talking about slavery now. Unless God has raised you up for this very thing, you will be worn out by the opposition of men and devils. But if God be for you, who can be against you? Are all of them together stronger than God? Oh, be not weary in well-doing. Go on in the name of God and in the power of his might till even American slavery, the vilest that ever saw the sun, shall vanish before it. Reading this morning a tract written by a poor African, I was particularly struck by that circumstance that a man who has a black skin being wronged or outraged by a white man can have no redress, it being a law in our colonies, that the oath of a black against a white goes for nothing. What villainy is this? That he who who has guided you from your youth, from your youth up, may continue to strengthen you in this and all things is the prayer of, dear sir, your affectionate servant, John Wesley. And this this is evangelical faith, Mm -hmm. biblical faith in action. Notice how he has no hesitation to favorably compare the politician Wilberforce to the the ecclesiastical leader Athanasius. Absolutely, exactly. Mm -hmm. And this is the kind of integration that uh, the evangelicals had in their lives. Um, Let's hear another clip from uh, from our at this juncture from very quickly in the next few minutes from our friends here. I think a lot of worldly thinking had invaded the church and aligned itself with people. And so people are responding, whether that uh, on either extreme, they're responding like the world would respond. And I think there's an American invasion of evangelicalism that I think finally we're responding to maybe in a positive way saying, hey, we're not California. You know, we can't we can't just think politically. And so even as I think uh, Paul said earlier, there's this political invasion. I think there's also an understanding from most that that's not where we want to go. And so you have kind of the extreme political stand, but I think a renewed understanding that politics aren't going to save us. The government or anti-government isn't going to save us. We need to get back to focusing on Jesus and fixating on his mission. Where do you start with that? I mean, it's gibberish. Mm. It's literally (laughs) gibberish. Uh, I mean, is it a reference to John MacArthur's church in California Seems as though there are, suddenly yeah. he's only concerned with politics? I've never heard such nonsense. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't understand. This is like, yeah. this is a uniquely Canadian fixation About, to define ourselves yeah. negatively as right. not American. Our That's apologies, right. yeah. by the way, to our American listeners about this absurdity yeah. that you've just heard from... Subjecting them to this nonsense. <laughs> uh, but... Look, let me let me give one uh, final quote from a from a leading evangelical, Charles Spurgeon, to respond to that. Oh, is he going to talk about America? <laughs> <laughs> so Spurgeon said this: "I long for the day when the precepts of the Christian religion shall be the rule among all classes of men and all transactions. I often hear it said, 'Do not bring religion into politics.'" This is precisely where it ought to be brought and set there in the face of all men as on a candlestick. I would have the cabinet and members of parliament do the work of the nation as before the Lord. And I've cited before, end quote, and I've cited before his uh, Spurgeon's manifesto. Mm-hmm. And he would address these things frequently in his sermons. He, he, would, he would address the application of the word of God in these contexts. And I think... Obviously, this illustrates what we've heard there. It illustrates the false dualism, the the uh, nature-grace duality. What's ironic is in their attempt to avoid political discourse, they're actually acting in a highly political way. Well, that's why I cited what Lloyd-Jones said about the Plymouth Brethren, uh, which is that the notion that, uh, you know, you're supposedly sinning if you're engaged or or you're on the wrong side of things if you're engaging 
um, politically is a form of right. political engagement. Mm-hmm. You are you're supporting the status quo. Mm-hmm. This is the issue. This is just status quo politics. Mm-hmm. And I, we've said before on this program that the uh, to the ecclesiasticization of the gospel of the word of God, that is the imprisoning of it within purely these ecclesiastical environment, yep. calls forth the secularization of the world. Mm-hmm. And then what happens is those who have called forth secularization circle the wagons and affirm the status quo. Um, and uh, this is a... How do you address something like that? How do you, how do you face... We've talked today about C, Bill C4, for example. Let's take that as our... Uh, uh, in these last couple of minutes, our key point to end on is given C4, you've got the politicization, haven't we, in our culture of multiple issues. So family is politicized. Marriage is politicized. Human identity and sexuality is politicized. Um, Do we not, because culture has politicized these things, do we not deal with these issues then as the church? Mm Mm-hmm. To, what are we? What have we got left to actually preach to? You're going to find an increasingly shrinking pool of things that are available to speak on yeah, in right. the church, yeah. which goes back to the privatization issue that uh, Nathan mentioned earlier. This is the radical privatization of the faith mm-hmm. to something that basically takes place between your ears: right. slavery, prostitution, um, the 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 role of the state as God's deacon. All of these things, sexual immorality, they're all dealt with in the Bible. What, are these texts not available to us now? Mm-hmm. Do we not apply them, not just to the family, not just to the individual, but to society and to culture and political life? There is no neutral state possible. And so it, it comes down to a question of, do we actually care that children are being murdered in the womb? Well, and do we actually love our neighbor? Precisely. Mm-hmm. That's where I was going with that, okay. Nathan. Is, do we actually <laughs> leapfrogged right to it? You, you hit my punchline. Do, do we do we care that children are going to be mutilated with Bill C four? Yeah. Do we actually care that uh, young women are being sold into prostitution and to sexual slavery as young as thirteen mm-hmm. and fourteen? Mm-hmm. Do we actually care about the Marxist indoctrination of our children and critical race theory and all of that mm-hmm. in the schools and in our churches? Uh, we're thankful for men like Sam Say who have stood for these things uh, in, uh, in, in our culture at the present time in, in, in Canada and are setting an example there. Uh, but the, 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 the fact is when people say, well, you know, look at history and then give you no examples... <laughs> it's because when you look at evangelical history and you look at the history of the Puritan world, you look at the Reformation, you see God's people applying their faith to all of life. And this is what this is all we're urging. This is not rocket science. And as we are in this Christmas season um, and we're in the Advent period right now, um, I was reflecting today on the Magnificat and Mary's song of praise. Uh, where she begins, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. And in in uh, Luke 1, this is, of course, and in verse 51, uh, she sings, uh, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. This is the meaning of the incarnation. Hmm. This is the mean. This is at the heart of the meaning of the season that we're in right now, and it is fundamentally a challenge to the technocracy and rebellion uh, of our era. And if the church, you see, Nathan and Ryan, you know, we tend that as as a culture, as Christians in our culture, I should say, to say, look, the problem is the nasty world. Mm-hmm. Look at the nasty things Parliament's doing. Look at the horrible things the Senate's doing. Look at what these politicians are doing. Tut, tut, tut. Mm. That's not our problem in Canada. Mm. It's not our problem in the West. It's not the core. It's not the root of our problem. The root of our problem is exactly what you've just heard in those clips. It's the rebellion and apostasy of the church. It is is the failure to have, as Lloyd-Jones says, a Christian worldview. Hmm. It's the abandonment of the scriptural motive of creation, 
fall, redemption of all things in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the privatization of our faith to the realm between our ears. And that's why I'm going to close our session with this quote from Hermann Doerwerd in uh, one of his essays on the secularization of science, which was our subject for today. He says, now we are confronted with the fact that our Western culture has been spiritually uprooted, a state of affairs that is unthinkable apart from the process of the secularization of science. For the children of the Calvinistic Reformation, he says, there should be no question of wasting time. He may have told us off for this session in light of this. (laughs) There should be no question of wasting time in long scholastic discussions about whether science and philosophy also pertain to the kingdom of Jesus Christ or whether they belong instead to a domain of natural reason. This discussion need not go on because, as we have shown, there is no natural reason that is independent of the religious driving force which controls the heart of human existence. Amen. There are only two ways open, that of scholastic accommodation, which by reason of its dialectic and dialectical unfolding results in secularization, or that of the spirit of the Reformation, which requires the inward radical reformation of thought by the driving power of the biblical motive. Let us remember the words of our Savior, no man can serve two masters. Can somebody drop a mic? Just, because uh, yeah, I... we, oh, the ours are attached here, but <laughs> <laughs> that, would, that would be the mic drop moment. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Herman Doyward. Thanks, Joe. That's, uh, that really is a powerful way to, uh, to end this session. Do you have anything to add to that, Nate? Uh, no, I okay. do not. Good. It was just a formality. <laughs> <laughs> Good. I mean, do I ever preacher going to preach? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much for listening. This has been the podcast for Cultural Reformation brought to you by the Ezra Institute. We remind you again that from him and through him and to him are all things... That includes the realm of politics. We'll look forward to seeing you next week. 